and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern, and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out my interview with Arcady Martin, author of A Memory Called Empire. That novel won the 2020 Hugo Award for Best Novel, and is partly drawn from her years of experience as a historian in medieval and Byzantine history. That interview is on fullcontactnerd.com. I also interview James Miller, who has decades of experience in unmanned spacecraft navigation, and he talks about the early days of nuclear submarines and the unmanned space programs. That interview can be found at technologyandspace.com. I'm speaking with Leslie Bloom, author of Fallout, The Hiroshima Cover-Up and the Reporter Who Revealed It to the World. Published August 4th, 2020 by Simon & Schuster. Thanks for speaking with me. So happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. So first, um, what prompted you to uh, study this subject and write a book on it? Well, I, I knew that I wanted my next nonfiction book to be uh, a newsroom narrative. Uh, I'm, I essentially grew up in a newsroom. My dad was a, a producer and writer for Cronkite and a speechwriter. And, you know, I've spent my entire life and including my adult professional life in newsrooms. Um, and also, I just, you know, was very have been very rattled over the last four and a half years by the um, attacks, unprecedented attacks on our on our press um, and designation by certain parties of our press as enemies of the people. Mm-hmm. So what I really wanted to do was to find a, a historical newsroom narrative that really drove home to readers the importance of an independent uh, free press mm-hmm. um, in upholding, you know, democracy and holding the powerful to account. I have long had uh, an academic and sort of a personal affinity for the World War II period. And honestly, at first, I could not find my newsroom story there because so many of the great stories had been told already. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I tended to concentrate on the European theater, which is where my academic background is. So and actually over over dinner one night, my, my husband, who's a newsman, too, suggested he said i wonder wonder how hiroshima and nagasaki were covered and you know we were we were discussing it surely from a logistical point of view you know how how on earth would a journalist get in on the ground um you know after a, a nuclear attack in 1945 when so little was known about the weapon and um and and the 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 destruction had been so total, but you know, this logistical question led to a, you know a much bigger topic. And when I looked into it, I realized that the story of how John Hersey got his story um, Hiroshima, which ran in the New Yorker in 1946, has never it just had never been written about. I couldn't believe that it hadn't. And you know, when you're in my line of business, if you if you find a story like that that hasn't been written on yet, you leap on it. Mm-hmm. So. I'll point out for listeners, one of the interesting things, um, I read your book and it's fantastic. I couldn't put it down. Um, as is, um, John Hersey's Hiroshima, which is also a great, uh, write up. It's been turned into book form, uh, since, um, one of the interesting points, which you just, um, alluded to is, is not only how difficult it was for, um, journalists to get, uh, to the bomb site right after it happened, but how many were complicit in going along with what um, the military wanted uh, said and covered. Can you talk about that? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, John Hersey's report, which revealed the true aftermath in Hiroshima, didn't come out for more than a year after the bombings. You know, the bombing of Hiroshima uh, took place on August 6, 1945, and Nagasaki, uh, August 9th. And, um, you know, originally, a handful of reporters who came in with uh, occupying forces, you know, these were tough war correspondents. And, you know, for a few of them, getting that scoop, being the first in on the ground in one of the atomic cities was a huge deal. Uh, You know, the New York Times had covered the bombing from above. They had had a reporter accompany the Nagasaki bombing run. But, you know, what the story was like under those mushroom clouds and what the human toll was seen as a journalistic prize. Now, a few few of these journalists did manage to get to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. There were some initial reports that were extremely alarming in the early days of the occupation um, that that came out detailing that this wasn't a conventional mega weapon this was a weapon that continued an experimental weapon that continued to kill long after detonation and that there was a sinister affliction that was that was killing off blast survivors and that japanese doctors were helpless to combat it they didn't understand what they were grappling with Hmm. and then the media reports shut down Nothing is really coming out of Hiroshima and Nagasaki beyond pictures of the landscape devastation and the mushroom clouds. And, you know, there there are a few reasons for this. I mean, first of all, the, the Macar- General MacArthur's occupation forces were uh, incredibly quick, even in the chaos of those early occupation days, um, to corral Western reporters and uh, enact a press code that really restricted Japanese media from even mentioning Hiroshima in poetry, much less a, much, much less a press report. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, also... You know, so you know there were considerable obstacles that were put up in, in in the way of reporters who would have tried to get again down into to Hiroshima for a, you know follow up reports, but then it was kind of it started to be seen as as an old story as the weeks moved on. I mean, first there was a huge, the the big story was the 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 Japanese surrender on September second, and there were hundreds of Allied uh, reporters who were. We were covering that. None of them were giving a second thought to to getting down to the atomic cities. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the occupation itself really became a huge story. And, you know, the repositioning of Japan as an ally as opposed to, you know, a bloody wartime enemy. There were limitless new scoops to turn attention to. And so a lot of reporters, as you say, were complicit in looking the other way on Hiroshima, abandoning it, abandoning it as, quote unquote, an old story and, and really looking for the next the next scoop. Mm-hmm. And sort of to um, sort of set set the scene for for listeners, um, I think I, I think I'm correct. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but wasn't the bombing to some extent the public just thought of it as just a lot of firebombing, like the idea of a radiation bomb, atomic bomb, and radiation seemed like science fiction ideas to people to to the point where they couldn't even believe it. To them, it was just a really big bomb and and at the end of the day that's not a huge story you know um well i mean the u.s government and, and military were it, they seemed like they were being ex- almost ecstatically for forthright when they were first rolling out the news that they had used 
an atomic weapon on, on Hiroshima. So they, they never covered up the fact that they had used a new kind of weapon. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, is you know, they, they really painted it as um, a, a, a conventional mega weapon. And so in Truman's announcement about the Hiroshima bombing, he immediately equates the atomic bomb to 20,000 tons of TNT. So people are are immediately encouraged to think about it in those terms. Yes, it's it's horrifically destructive, and they could barely fathom something on that scale. But mm. it, 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 they were not encouraged to think about this as an experimental mega weapon, especially because it had just been used on a city that had military value but was ninety percent civilian. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the casualties. So, and then you know in the, in the, the days and the weeks. The, that followed the initial occupation, the, the government and military did go to pretty extensive um, lengths to downplay um, the radiation sickness that was ravaging blast survivors, you know, spinning it as, as Japanese propaganda. Um, Leslie Groves, when he, I'm sorry, General Leslie Groves, who's the head of the Manhattan Project, is talking to Congress in the fall of 1945 and, and being asked to describe the bombs. And he, you know, concedes at that point that, yes, there may have been you know, some radiation sickness that was plaguing uh, blast survivors, but it was, quote, a, a very pleasant way to die, he said, unquote. Mm-hmm. So even even when they when the government was conceding that, you know, there was this radioactive aftermath, um they were still downplaying the, the the horrific reality of what it was doing to to blast survivors and and what what it therefore meant that all humans everywhere were were living in the atomic age. Mm-hmm. And this uh, so this question it, this is maybe a bit out of the scope of your book, but um, I read a book by I think it's Paul Tibbetts. He's one of the pilots for um, yeah. one of the bombing missions. In his book, he says. You know, people said that they only dropped it on Japan because, you know, they didn't care about Japanese, you know, racial inferiority. But Paul Tibbetts says they were ready to drop it on Germany, you know, one bomb for Germany, one bomb for Japan. So it makes me wonder, you know, if we can assume that he's being uh, honest about that. You know, if, if a bomb had been dropped on Germany to an atomic bomb, I wonder if all of this would have played out in the same way as it did um, with Japan. I, you know, look, it's hard, it's hard, it's hard to say. I mean, Americans were, you know, rightfully enraged at the Japanese. I mean, they were enraged by Pearl Harbor. They were horrified by Japanese atrocities in in China and in the Pacific Theater. They had been, you know, a really terrible enemy to fight in the Pacific Theater. And so, I think, you know, the the rage that was directed at Japan was definitely equal to, you know, the rage that was directed at at uh, you know the Germans and the Nazis. But you know, whether um, I mean, my, my book doesn't really unpack, you know, the, the racial component as much as, as, as some readers would have liked. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this, this book really looks at how the story of the bomb was, was told to the American public and to, you know, and to the world at large. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I would be, I think, you know, I think that there was probably, you know, the attitudes of American soldiers towards Japanese, there was definitely a much higher, you know, racial component to, you know, fueling the hatred towards, towards the Japanese than there was you know, towards the Germans. And, you know, mm-hmm. I was reading, you know, a lot of military testimonials where, you know, even reporters were saying, you know, God, sometimes they wish that they were covering the European theater and you definitely want to be captured by, you know, the Germans as opposed to the Japanese, because at least the Germans are human. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know there was definitely an attitude that the Japanese were, were bestial subspecies among um, uh, those in the Pacific theater, whether you were a, a military uh, person or or a, a reporter. Mm-hmm. 
And I might have been speaking fast, but I just wanted to make sure, clarify that I didn't mean to say the Japanese were racially inferior, but that that idea existed among people. Um, oh, I, I, yeah, I, I didn't take that from your question at all. <laughs> I mean, at all, but I, they're, they're really, um, you know, that, that was a huge, there was a massive propaganda campaign you know, throughout the war, really to drive home the, the, what they call the yellow peril component, you know, uh, to painting their Japanese as an especially bestial enemy. The Japanese, of course, didn't do, you know, help themselves by, you know, a lot of their, their war crimes and the atrocities that, again, that they committed throughout China and the Pacific theater. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that was interesting for me in covering the occupation press corps, you know, in, in, in September of 1945 forward is how they covered the story of how the U.S. U.S. then walked back the story of the Japanese as, you know, this bestial subspecies of, of humanity and recast them as um, Cold War allies as their uh, you know, their antagonism with the Soviet Union grew. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with Leslie M. M. Bloom, author of Fallout. You can find more information about her work at lesliemmbloom.com. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more military history ranging from the ancient to the modern, please visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep up with my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at fullcontactnerd.com and technologyinspace.com. Now back to the podcast. So let's, um, so back to the specifics of the book. Um, so from at some point in the book early on, you talk about how, uh, John Hersey, uh, started to manage or plan, uh, to get into Japan to cover the story. Um, so can you talk to that a bit? Yeah, sure. So, look, when I when I first came at this subject, you know, Hersey's story Hiroshima has all the hallmarks of a of an expose, and I thought, well, I mean, he must have gotten in without permission from the occupation forces, and you know, how on earth would he have done that? And again, I'm a journalist covering a journalist. I'm coming at it from a logistical point of view, mm-hmm. because you know, we know that whoever controls the ground controls the story. Okay, lo and behold, you know, you never assume it's the, you know, the cardinal sin of journalism, <laughs> you know, and historian, uh, his work of historians alike. Mm-hmm. You know, Hersey did, did not get in, you know, on the sly. And he uh, was given access to, um, to, to uh, Japan by MacArthur's PRO or press relations office. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it was, it was interesting because, you know, the earliest reporters who got in, to Hiroshima and Nagasaki in the first few days of the occupation, they were able to take advantage of chaos conditions um, and, and, you know, get, get down to the atomic cities. And, you know, a couple, you know, a couple of those guys had been butting heads with MacArthur's press relations officers for years, you know, completely rebelling against wartime censorship. John Hersey was a different kind of reporter. He was a pretty reliable wartime ally to the U.S. military. He wrote a lot of uh, glowing profiles of military figures, including um, a, a substantial wartime biography of General MacArthur and his forces. Um, he later wished that he could take that that biography out of uh, out of print because he said it was too too complimentary. But if you're a reporter who's applying to get in to occupy Japan, it's not going to hurt, you know, <laughs> to have 
very flattering profile of General MacArthur. Mm-hmm. So Hersey is, in a way, you know, as I describe him in Fallout, he's he's a Trojan horse reporter because he's going to be seen by you know press relations officers when they're evaluating his application for entrance to the country. He's going to be seen as somebody who you know is a reliable ally. Is probably going to be a relatively innocuous presence and isn't going to find some way to, you know, to embarrass the, the, the military. Uh, and so lo and behold, they let him in. Mm-hmm. And then getting, getting around the country, um, that part, I, I forget how, how much detail you go into with that, but it seems even in 46, it would be difficult, um, to get around to these. I don't know how far flung these, these spots are from Tokyo, but, uh, could you talk to that a bit? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, get it. You know, we, strangely, you know, Hiroshima's train station the, or the, the line to Tokyo remained intact. The train station itself was was demolished, um, but you could still travel pretty quickly by train from Tokyo to Hiroshima. And that's actually how the first two correspondents had gotten in on the ground in August of 1945. Mm-hmm. But it was still a, you know, a, a 24 hour proposition to get down there. And, you know, if you were trying to get a, around the country, not by train, well, for, well, first of all, even if you got in by, by train, you know, a Jap- Japanese infrastructure, you had to be given permission as an allied correspondent by um, SCAP, you know, the Supreme Commander of, uh, for the Allied powers, which was both General MacArthur's title, but also the name of his operation. So you had to get permission to travel by train. You were given a certain amount of time in your destination um, and, you know, you were grilled about your topic. So, you know, even if you could get around that way, you know, there were still, you know, a lot of hoops to jump through. Um, If you intended to get to a, a location in the country that wasn't connected by Japanese infrastructure or by train, you had to use, you know, American military jeeps. They controlled they controlled the gasoline. So if you were working on a, if they thought you were going to work on a story that might embarrass them, guess what? You weren't getting the gas. Oh, and guess what else? You might not get food. Um, you know, you know, the, the journalists were told by, uh, you know, the, the head of, uh, the, the public relations office, press relations office, you know, if when you're thinking about writing up your stories, don't forget who controls the food here. So there was a very blunt, um, a very blunt relationship between the between the two parties um hersey was given permission once he got into tokyo to travel to hiroshima prefecture for two weeks which might seem like it was a long time but it really wasn't considering you know the the sheer logistical obstacles that faced him he had to get down there first of all he didn't speak japanese he would have to find translators to help him speak with blast survivors he would have to find blast survivors to speak with he would have to convince them to trust him, an American reporter, um, to to tell uh, their stories to him, um, and you know, also Hiroshima was a smoldering ruin still at this time. I mean, how was he going to eat when he was down there? The army was very clear when they gave them him uh, his travel permissions that he was going to have to provide his own sustenance. That might seem you know not like a big deal. But it was, uh, you know, because the army, as they always pointed out, they controlled the food. So it was uh, logistically complicated, um, but still a stroke of good luck for Hersey that he was able to get down there at all. Mm-hmm. And again, a question that's a bit outside. Well, it is outside the scope of the book. But again, maybe you can answer it. Do you think the conditions for the press then were similar or how are they similar or different than than they are now, say, for the wars or current wars? Do you have any idea about that? I mean, I, look, we now we have more of what we, 
what we call an embed system, you know, where reporters are embedded with military units and cover military units, you know, from the inside. And um, that's a similar arrangement to how war cor- allied war correspondents operated in World War Two, you know, where you were assigned a theater, you were assigned a company and you accompanied them. I mean, Hersey himself had been embedded as we would put it today with um, a unit in the Pacific at one point in the Solomon Islands and had had helped evacuate wounded Marines as a part of of, of that assignment um, I think it really depends com- it, it widely varies from conflict to, to conflict you know but again the, the the sort of rule of thumb is that whoever controls the ground controls the story and um, you know if you can get into a, a conflict theater unilaterally um, it's it's a it's a pretty big deal, um, but otherwise, a lot of um, reporters do tend to to function as embeds today. Mm-hmm. So, how vital? It seems vital to his story that one of his the individuals he interviewed was a Christian missionary. You know, to sort of create that stronger tie with the public back home. It, is that accurate? You think? Well, I think you know it was partly a logistical entree to the blast survivor community but it's it's certainly going to help uh right away because he's you know he interviewed hersey just to give your your listeners some background when he got into to hiroshima he ended up in having the fortune of interviewing dozens of not many dozens but still dozens of blast survivors and his idea was that he was going to choose a handful of them people whose narratives overlapped and people who we would call in the states you know regular folks so there was a you know a young mother a, a young widow with three children there was a young female clerk there was a young doctor you know regular people and then among them were were also two men of the cloth there was uh, a german priest who lived in hiroshima and acted as one of Hersey's translators and introducers, and also a Japanese Protestant minister who just happened to have been educated in the States. And using and those two characters are arguably his main characters. Um, you really follow them through the most action. And I think it probably did lower the guard for some Americans, lower the hostility um, bar um, to to lead in with with uh, again to religious figures, especially Christian religious figures. Mm-hmm. So as far as um, his difficulties in getting, well, one of the interesting things I I found from the book was um, General Groves sort of in a way accidentally approving his manuscript without sort of understanding the impact it would have. Um, can you talk to that a little bit? Well, first of all, you know, I flipped the hell out when I came across that information because mm-hmm. this is this is another instance of me assuming and then being corrected in, in like the most academically violent way. You know, I mean, so I had assumed that, again, Hersey had gotten he he had gotten in and he, he out to Japan. He got out with his his reporting. He writes the story in the States. And what I discovered in my research is that it it didn't he didn't just release it with his with his editors after that point. Um, you know, something happened while Hersey and his editors at the New Yorker were editing this story, which was about to really embarrass the U.S. government, and you know, not only reveal the hu- the, the the true human toll of of the the American bombs, but also reveal the extent to which the Americans had really covered up the truth about these bombs from their from their citizens. And so, while Hersey and his his editors are editing and fact checking and really working over this story and they know it's going to be enormously controversial and they're they're 
stealing themselves for it. President Truman signs into into law the Atomic Energy Act, and one of Mm -hmm. the provisions in this act is that anybody who reveals information about nuclear matters, which obviously includes nuclear weaponry, that in any way compromises the security of the U.S. is going to be held culpable. And some of the some of the uh, punishments were quite extreme. I mean, they were, you know, it was considered a form of treason. It could be. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, look, that would have been very hard to prove that Hersey's report had been, you know, treasonous or undercut national security in some way, but it was an extremely inconvenient um, thing to a roadblock all of a sudden that was put in their way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so Hersey and his team all of a sudden faced this horrible quandary. You know, do they, do they run the story without submitting it? Um, for vetting to to be determined whether or not it undermined national security or not, or um, do they submit it? And it's basically, you know, the idea, it, it, it almost seems like they're, they would be sending it off to the guillotine <laughs> if they're, you know, um, I hate to ruin this, but but they do they do submit it, and they don't submit it just to to any old person at the War Department. They submit it to General Leslie Groves, the head of the Manhattan Project for vetting. Mm-hmm. Um, when I found evidence that this had been submitted to Groves, Again, I just it just told, it, it really took Hiroshima, the report, out of the realm of subversive expose. It, and, and it ended up being that, but it also now it also became access journalism to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. And parsing the rationale for submitting it and also for Leslie Groves's eventual response to the material was a months long labyrinth of uh you know of of research and consulting with leslie groves experts Mm -hmm. so i'll say personally so i guess in one sense that might be like an interesting reveal in the book but really what i found more fascinating well that that was very fascinating point but how the u.s the military spun it after the fact um and we don't have to go into detail just i'm gonna go into other questions but for readers or, you know, people who read this book, you'll, it's really interesting to see how the U S takes this potential problem and spins it around to their benefit. Um, it's really, it's pretty fascinating. So I'm going to turn towards how, what resources you use for your research, but I'll, I'll make the point that for many years, most of my life, I've thought it was important that the U S drop the bombs to end the war. You know, the whole idea of, um, avoiding, a major invasion and all the deaths that would go with it. But after having read this book, plus combined with some um, other information I've, I've learned over the last couple of years, I'm, I'm pretty much convinced that it wasn't necessary to drop the bombs. And I know a lot of listeners here will say, no, no, you know, um, that's counterfactual, which might be the case. You know, you never really know. But there's there seems to be a lot of evidence that Japan was on the verge of surrendering um even without the bombs being dropped. So I'll just make that point that this book is an important, another, uh, another good point of foundation for the idea that maybe the bomb shouldn't have been dropped. So with that said, um, tell me how you did your research for this book. I, I, I'll start by saying that the research for this book was one of the most incredible experiences of my, of my academic and journalistic life. And, you know, my last book was about Ernest Hemingway and finding information about fresh information about Hemingway is like scratching water out of rocks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, with this, with this 
research, it was just you know, mountains of new relevant material kept coming in, in, in my direction. And, you know, as I say in the, the acknowledgments of the book, this book could have been a thousand pages. It's not. It's, you know, 250. Yeah. Um, I did research on three continents in four languages, not with with help of of a research and translation team. Um, the languages were English, obviously, Japanese, obviously, Russian, because there's a big Soviet narrative to the story. Um, and this really is—it's a World War II story, but it's a Cold War story also. Mm-hmm. And and German, because one of Hersey's, uh, as we've been saying, one of his main protagonists was German. It was a huge archival dig. And, uh, you know, I've read a ton of reporter memoirs. We did interviews with surviving protagonists. I interviewed biographers. Um, I got access to unpublished interview notes with Hersey, uh, managed to get access to unpublished diaries of one of Hersey's protagonists, um, had enormous help from one of Hersey's last living central protagonists from, from the, from the story, uh, went to Hiroshima, went to Tokyo, interviewed and researched in both of those places with the help of a, of a translator. Um, I would say that my primary archival sources were John Hersey's papers at Yale, mm. the New Yorker's papers at the NYPL and then NARA, um, and I would say of the three, you know, Nara was, you know, pretty, it was, there was a, a great yield from that, but it was also super frustrating because we were told, meaning my, my main research assistant and I were told that only one to three percent of the SCAP papers, you know, the Supreme Commander of Allied Powers uh, and occupation papers survived and are intact at Nara. Um, and you know that I can only imagine how much more fully I could have told this story if, if, if a greater historical, uh, if, the, if the records had been better preserved. Mm-hmm. Um, the greatest yield, I would say, you know, did come from the Hersey papers. Some surprising stuff in there that took a really long time to parse. Some handwritten notes um, uh, that were written on the back of envelopes, uh, you know, which helped me piece together his time on the ground in uh, in Tokyo and Hiroshima, and then the New Yorker papers which are so picked over. Oh my God. I mean, so many biographies have been written about the New Yorker and its brilliant editors. I expected to find, you know, precisely zilch. (laughs) That is actually where I found in, um, in a misfiled document, the revelation that the New Yorker team and Hersey had submitted Hiroshima to Leslie Groves. And that, that was, I I screamed in the middle of that archive. I can't believe they didn't kick me out. Um, I won't tell you what I screamed, but it wasn't ladylike. Um, and yeah, so that that's in a nutshell, that's that's the, the scope of the research. Do you know, you didn't mention or the, the military papers. Do you know why so few survived? It's unclear why so few survived. I don't know if they just didn't make it over from Japan. Um, and what what we did have was pretty juicy. So I can it's like I'm almost in despair thinking about what what got left behind or what crumbled and even even what we were dealing with it's like crumbly boxes these are not things that have been you know, you know lovingly preserved um or or even you know digitized um so I, yeah I, I don't know what to say I, I but I do feel you know like my research into this remains tip of the iceberg. And I, I think that there's still, even in that one to 3% yeah. of surviving documents, ample material for subsequent scholars to come back at this subject. I'm speaking with Leslie M. M. Bloom, author of Fallout, 
You can find more information about her work at lesliemmbloom.com. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more military history ranging from the ancient to the modern, please visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep up with my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at fullcontactnerd.com and technologyinspace.com. Now back to the podcast. So the stuff you found, did it come from a specific, say, department or shop within the command, you know, that managed to preserve its stuff? Well, we were looking primarily at the press relations office because that's what deals with journalists. And, you know, luckily there, I mean, there was a surprising number of records that were intact from that operation, you know, stuff that confirmed, you know, travel, um, issued travel invitational orders, um, you know, reports in which the press office is monitoring the activities of certain journalists on the ground, you know, the disposition of the journalists, the disposition of the coverage um, that certain publications was putting out to, towards MacArthur and Pacific Theater operations and the occupation. I mean, there was a lot of that stuff, surprisingly, still there. But, um, you know, again, we were looking mostly at press relations office. And thank God that some of it was still there. Hmm. Yeah, no, it's, uh, sorry, my my sort of amateur sleuth mind is going, and I'm just wondering, because all those documents should have been, I mean, the federal federal rules and regulations would have said that those documents should be preserved and end up in the national archives eventually, unless they had some kind of, unless they still had some, um, security issues attached to them, in which case they'd be somewhere else. So, so I'm just kind of thinking out loud right now. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm happy to think out loud with you on that too. I mean, it didn't seem like there had been, we, we weren't presented with any big dramatic story like, Oh, you know, they went down on a ship or, you know, something or they, or, but, and you know, a lot of the stuff that we looked at had been declassified. So I feel like, you know, if there had been a lot of sensitive um, stuff in it, um, in, in those documents, it wouldn't be considered sensitive at this point. Um, you know, a lot of the, um, so, I forgot to mention this when you asked me about my source material. I also pulled up CIA and FBI documents, War Department documents, also under FOIA requests, mm. and um, you know a lot of that stuff had been you know obviously declassified too. So I feel like it's not. It, I don't want to assume anything because look what happened the last few times. <laughs> I assumed you know with this topic, you know, one would assume that it's not being withheld anymore, but who who knows? Maybe some of it's just not. Maybe some of it's still there and it just hasn't been properly archived for availability. That That's what I mean when I say that there is there is still this is this is tip of the iceberg research on my part. Mm -hmm. How much for how many FOIA requests did you have to put in and how long did you wait for those responses? It came pretty fast, to be honest. I mean, with, within, you know, a month or two. And, um, you know, just again, it, I, I feel like it wasn't deemed wildly contentious material at this point we're 75 years on mm -hmm. i was especially interested well that that's how i found out first of all that you know the fbi knew that hersey was on the ground in hiroshima and monitored him as well as macarthur's um operation um so that that came from foia and then i was really interested you know on to your note earlier about how the u.s reacted you know u.s government reacted to hersey's report coming out mm -hmm. initially i wanted to to just really look in did they try to how were they going to react to this were were they going to tr ever try to discredit hersey or his um protagonists in his story mm -hmm. so you know cia records definitely would have revealed that the records that i got from the FOIA requests um 
did not indicate that there was any immediate dialogue um, about attempting to discredit him or undercut the story. But, you know, he was grilled later on by CIA agents uh, as we got more into the McCarthy era. And part of that pertained to his activities in Japan. Hmm. So just for listeners who might not be familiar with the the term, FOIA is Freedom of Information Act, and it's FOIA. And you can submit requests to the federal government for information if you can basically identify to some degree where it would be located, uh, where the records might be located. Um, I think that pretty much covers it, right? Basically. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so considering, so you had this, you know, this great discovery in the archives, and then you also traveled to Japan with that, maybe something you haven't mentioned, but what, what part of the research was most enjoyable for you? Was it one of those two things or something else? I mean, God, it's like choosing among your children. (laughs) Um, you know, the archival stuff was so damn rewarding that it was i mean that was just thrilling um and you know like any any time you're in proximity to you know physical remnants i mean this this is you know i'm documenting a letter writing era and you know when you're with the the handwriting um of uh, and the the letters of of your protagonists it's just really it makes you feel incredibly close to them and in the era and it puts you psychologically you know it so much more in the middle of your your subject um you know obviously you know finding the the, the documentation about the grove submission was a huge moment um finding hersey's uh finding some some of hersey's seemingly indecipherable notes on again on the backs of envelopes about his time in Hiroshima and Nagasaki that were just covered with with seemingly uh, random locations and names, you know, and and really starting to research those things and 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 when each of those clues made themselves apparent to me what it was, you know, those little triumphs were just exquisite. I will say that you know obviously going to Hiroshima itself was imperative for this project, and I went and I, I toured. Uh, Hiroshima with Hersey's last surviving central protagonist and was at the point of the exact hypocenter of the bomb's detonation. And, um, you know, there, there, the city has been mostly entirely rebuilt, but there are a few parts of it that remain um, as they were at the time of the bombing. Um, that I can't in any way describe that, as enjoyable i was like living outside of my own skin the entire time i was in hiroshima i mean it is a very rebuilt place but it is a haunted place um i interviewed the governor of hiroshima prefecture who you know basically admitted that this is a graveyard i mean it's that 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 city of nearly three million people now has been built upon a graveyard and anytime they're, they're they're you know digging a foundation for a new development or something they still find bones there um and, you know, it was it was a harrowing experience, but it was unbelievably unforgettable. And um, I'm really it, it, it brought I think it brought a dimension to 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 my research that, you know, if I had just armchaired it or archived it instead of going there, it really brought a, a new dimension to it. Yeah. So um, and I don't mean for this question to seem flippant compared to the subject matter we're discussing, but but part of what we're discussing makes me conjure up you know, sort of a Graham Greene novel where, you know, in noir film where you have this reporter, you know, with his classic 
you know, 40s and 50s attire on, sneaking around Japan and doing all this stuff. Did you get, as you read his notes and, and did this research, did you get a feeling like you were stepping back in time in any way? Yeah, of course. I mean, especially when you're in proximity to, to again, those those personal materials where you're, you know, looking. I mean, it's like when you're holding, when, again, when I found, you know, the envelopes that had his contacts, you know, written on the back of them, you can almost imagine him at the Japanese Correspondence Club, uh, you know, taking notes from, you know, the salty reporters or whatever military contact he had on the ground there and, you know, just jotting them down. I mean, it's like those documents place you in the moment so completely. And, um, you know, it's interesting because you start out not you start out knowing the broad strokes of your idea, but not knowing your protagonist really well. And then, you know, slowly that person, his personality and makes itself you know, increasingly apparent to you. And, you know, I, I felt like Hersey was a stranger to me and, it, you know, at the very beginning of the research and by the end of it, I felt like I had a pretty, really strong grasp, not just of, you know, how he had operated, how we got this story, but, you know, who he was and what his, his temperament was and what his presence was like. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that he so carefully preserved, um, you know, his, his materials from that period of time. Mm-hmm. If I recall, maybe I'm totally mistaken, but wasn't there some of the public affairs officers or maybe just one or maybe a couple seemed, were they sympathetic to what he was trying to uh, write about? I feel like there was at least one that was sympathetic or seemed sympathetic and wanted to help him out. Am I totally off base here or? Yeah, no, I mean, not definitely not the public relations officers. I mean, they were giving him permission to go around, but I think that, you know, they my feeling is that they probably assumed that Hiroshima at you know, eight or nine months after the fact, you know, was deemed such an old story that why would a correspondent of John Hersey's stature, you know, he's a Pulitzer Prize winner, he's incredibly well known, you know, at this point, why would he be he uh, concerning himself with an embarrassing story on Hiroshima? And so he's he's given a little, you know, more free reign than, um, you know, other journalists might might have been given Mm. um you know that said if i think if they really understood had understood his mission to show the human toll and you know reveal the the reality of nuclear weapons in hiroshima i don't think that they you know would have been as forthcoming with that help i will say that he did have um help from and 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 encouragement from some military figures there was one um filmmaking crew military uh, sorry an army filmmaking crew um who had been on the ground long before hersey got there who met with him in tokyo when he arrived um they had shot a ton of footage in hiroshima um before hersey arrived and in color no less and they had just been they were meeting with him privately at the japanese correspondence club in tokyo and telling him what they had seen and giving him a few contacts and giving him a few tips their own footage this film these filmmakers footage was about to be classified and bundled back to the u.s and it was going to be classified for decades after the fact and they were feeling you know really out of sorts and horrified about you know what they had seen and the fact that it was going to continue to be under wraps and here is this correspondent who's proposing to go down to hiroshima and tell the truth and so so they get they are the ones who gave him some help but they were not you know on the inside of um general macarthur's um scap apparatus do you you don't know what happened to that footage do do you any idea yeah it's declassified now you can actually see it on youtube oh okay okay that's pretty cool 
Yeah, but to, and and so the the scholar who has really covered that in enormous detail is uh, uh, called Greg Mitchell, and he um, has has documented the I hate this word, but the journey of that that footage and you know how it eventually got released. And one of the filmmakers um, himself, her uh, Susan, Private Susan, um, just his daughter just released um, his private diaries in book form, literally just a few weeks ago. Hmm. Have you had a chance to read them? Do they add anything to what you wrote? Or she was, yeah. I mean, I had access to them before um, to the Sally and parts of that before I, you know, before I published, and she was a source for me. So, yeah, that was that whole narrative about how those filmmakers helped her see in Tokyo before he went to Hiroshima came from her and from the from that diary material. Oh, excellent. Um, so you already mentioned stuff that surprised you. Is there any other tidbit? Um, again, you don't want to, if you don't want to spoil the book, that's fine. But anything else surprising that, that you might want to mention? I think, you know, honestly, the most surprising element of the, well, no, there are so many surprising elements of the narrative for me. And, and I, I, by the way, feel like I'm never going to be as lucky again in get and having a narrative, <laughs> being able to tell a story like this. Mm-hmm. But, you know, one thing that I really loved about this story was the supreme irony that the New Yorker magazine was the one to carry Hersey's story and to, and to, to break it because I mean, the New Yorker had been founded as this niche humor magazine in the 1920s. It was, you know, this, this sophisticated city slicker um, magazine and its founder, Harold Ross used to panic if it, if it got over a certain um, readership, he'd say, Oh my God, 300,000 people are reading us. We must be doing something wrong. (laughs) And, you know, it's a magazine that's known for its, its cartoons and, and you know that this was the publication that that carried it was just a pretty pretty exquisite storyline and you know the new yorker had to a certain extent gone full news you know uh, uh, during the war after you know pearl harbor that you know harold ross said you know nothing feels funny anymore and he immediately switched the magazine from a humor magazine to you know a wartime footing but, you know, after they, they were still always the, you know, the, the little guys in the ring and, you know, the New York Times, AP, all of the major news operations had bureaus or, or correspondents in Tokyo from day one of the occupation. And Hersey is still the one who got this story and the New Yorker is still the one that broke it. And it just blows my mind still after years of being immersed in the story. I'm still not jaded on that point. <laughs> Was there a question and I and maybe you've mentioned it already, was there a question that you really wanted to get an answer for but still don't have a good one that you're satisfied with? Any any element of this story? Well, I mean, look, the, the, the main questions that I went in have been you know, satisfied for the moment, at least in the Bear's Bones way, you know, how he got, how he got in, um, you know, how he got out. And, but I really, you know, the, the documentation surrounding the submission to Leslie Groves, and I, I want more on that. We, we could, we, we found confirmation on, in Leslie Groves's papers, you know, that the manuscript had been submitted to him, that he had required small changes and was dispatching one of his public relations officers to discuss in person with the New Yorker team, what those should be. When I'm pointing out what changed in the before and after of Hersey's story, I'm really just looking at, you know, the earliest surviving drafts and then the published draft. But I, I don't have 
you know, notes from the meeting between Groves's PRO guys when they're instructing the New Yorker guys, you know, this needs to be taken out. Like I would give my left eyeball to find out exactly what happened in those meetings and, you know, and explicitly what material had been taken out as opposed to having to, you know, piece it together. Cause it's, it's conjecture on my part that drives me insane. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that for me, it's it's not unresolved because we have a pretty good idea of what, you know, what was edited and why. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there there are still some there's documentation missing pieces. And, you know, that is is going to drive me crazy either until I drop dead or the next scholar finds it. <laughs> um, so you also I think in the book, you also touch on uh, Japanese reaction to the story. Um, a little bit, don't you? I think I recall that. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I mean, look, the Japanese weren't allowed to read it. You know, it, it, it uh, so when when Hiroshima, when the story is released in August of 1946, a lot of you know the the six protagonists who are now world famous because Hiroshima was syndicated not just across the states, but come all the way around the globe, and it was made immediately into a book and translated into so many languages from Hebrew to Bengali, for God's sake, but the Japanese, because of uh, the press code that was enacted, were not allowed to read or print uh, materials pertaining to to Hiroshima and the bombing. Um, Hersey and his team had to get some contraband issues uh, of, of the New Yorker containing the story over to Hersey's protagonists through a church in Japan and eventually he did hear back from, you know, a handful of his protagonists who were fluent in English and were, you know, could write letters to him. And they were, you know, one of the questions for me was how, how did they react to his reporting? Did they see it as, as having accurately portrayed their experiences? And the ones who did respond to him and who did give interviews on the subject later said that his memory seemed absolutely accurate, which was extraordinary. And then eventually the book is allowed because you know there's the article that was turned into a book the book was allowed to be translated into japanese and and submitted in that country distributed within that country but not till 1949 but you know to a certain extent look the japanese did not need john hersey to tell them what nuclear warfare looked like and what it had been like to be on the receiving end of the atomic bomb mm-hmm. but it still was an instant bestseller in that country you know because it was the first it was the first book it was the first reporting that had revealed to the world what it had would have been like in hiroshima and and by extension in nagasaki and um the fact that it had been written by an american reporter you know blew the minds of the japanese including the, his some of his protagonists who couldn't believe that he was allowed to publish something like that in in, in america mm-hmm. um and so it was uh it, it was well received and it remains, I mean, it's still widely sold in, in Japan. Mm-hmm. It tells you what kind of, um, that the freedom of the press in the U S is not just for the benefit, you know, internally, but externally, I think it both informs people of other nations and also gives them an idea of sort of the positive freedoms within the U S you know, um, well, for the moment, you know, I mean, and, and, and in that, you know, to your point, 
I mean, when Hersey's story came out in the magazine, immediately a handful of American reporters said, well, you know, this is great. The world is going to know. But guess what? Not the whole world is going to know because it's going to be censored in some regimes. And they meant Russia. They were right. The Soviet Union, you know, even though the rest of the world was benefiting from, you know, America's freedom of press and, you know, Hersey's investigative reporting in places where, you know, those freedoms are not honored, were not honored. Um, even Hersey's reporting could not inform those those um, populations. And in fact, Hersey's Hiroshima was only just published in Russian in its entirety for the first time last month. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> That's yes. pretty interesting. Wow. I, I, I'm like speechless. Like it took yeah. that long to <laughs> 70, 74 years. I have a story coming out on that in the New York times in a couple of weeks. Um, and why, and why it took so long and how hostile the Soviets really were towards, towards, uh, Hersey's reporting, but that's a, a different subject. Well, I'd be really interested in reading that. Um, you've mentioned some of the, the emotional impacts of, of, of researching this for you. Um, was there anything else either positively or negatively, um, that emotionally impacted you as you did the research? Well, two two things, and this one of them is very specific um, to the era, and then the other thing is, is is sort of more of a macro response. And one thing that really surprised me in my research was, you know, I, I went into this knowing that it was going to be in, incredibly hard to live with this material um, because it's a really complicated and dark topic and you know i mean i have a strong stomach i am a reporter i grew up in a newsroom but you know it's you're being you're it was going i was going to have to be steeped in you know again what it had would have been like on the ground in hiroshima i did surprisingly well um i mean and i had to read a lot of a lot of it i read a ton of um Blast survivor testimonies. I also read a lot of testimonies and books by Japanese doctors and what it had been like on the ground in the days after the fact. I mean, this was some gruesome stuff, but I did okay with it. What really surprised me, the hardest part was, you know, a couple of the, the early reporters who had gotten in before Hersey, and I had to be really well-versed in their activities and their reporting, after they had left Hiroshima and Nagasaki. One in particular had um, gone to POW camps, allied POW camps in Japan, and what really was the hardest thing to read was the testimonies of the American POWs and what they had suffered at the hands of the Japanese. I mean, that was, like, just, just torturous to read. So the fact that I could navigate... This, the material about nuclear aftermath and be okay. But, you know, I think, I think, and I've really thought about it a lot since. And, you know, the, the fact is, is that the, you know, the, the atrocities towards the POWs, it was a one-on-one, you know, the, 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 the one-on-one atrocities are, are just so much harder to fathom mm-hmm. than, you know, somebody like Paul Tibbetts, who's just, you know, eviscerating a population by pressing a button in the sky and down the, you know, down this bomb goes into the clouds. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that really surprised me. And then, you know, the macro thing is, you know, look, when I, when I first started researching this topic, it was, a, it was a deep history topic. And obviously it was always going to be relevant because there's always, you know, the, the threat of the nuclear landscape, right? So it's always going to have contemporary relevance, but then, you know, with, over the last four years, you know, two things just became so harrowingly relevant. Um, and, you know, the first of all, you know, with the attacks on our free press by our president, by his his followers, you know, the designation of, you know, our reporters as enemies of the people. I mean, the, the it, 
extreme importance of um, Hersey's example you know, really uh, came into sh- to sharp relief. Mm-hmm. And then also with COVID, I mean, you know, here we have a, a government that has been, you know, downplaying and covering up aspects of a deadly global existential threat. And here I am documenting our gov- you know, our government in history, downplaying and covering up a, a deadly global existential threat. And it's like, God, doesn't this ever go out of style? <laughs> so, you know, I, I really could have done without, um, you know, those things being so acutely relevant because they, you know, indicate, you know, really terrible uh, problems that we're facing right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that that was, you know, it, it made the stakes of the project seem higher to me while I was researching. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, you pretty much answer this next question, which is um, what do you hope the book w- will do for readers? And it sounds like you kind of address that. But is there any more? Or have you covered? I'm, I'm, I'm thinking. No, I'm thinking about it. Like, yeah, I mean, is there, is there more? I mean, I mean, you do fill a a, a historical gap, um, and you do as you did, as you just said. Um, you know, you wrote and spoke to the importance of the the freedom of the press. I'm just I'm just trying to, to think of a way to encapsulate you know all of that. I mean, I just hope that it. it I mean, it's a, it's a work of history. It's meant to tell a story about a missing gap in history. And so that, that, you know, it's supposed to serve its purpose in that respect. And I'm proud that it does do that. But at the same time, because it is so acutely relevant for all the wrong reasons, I suppose, and I, I don't know if this is, is kosher for, for a historian, but I, I do genuinely hope that it inspires activism. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are ways to support your press you, you know, you don't just have to shake your head and say, oh, you know, there are, you know, Trump supporters who want to hang journalists. You know, it's like you can buy a subscription to your local newspaper. You can voice, you know, your indignation, disgust or outrage about the way the press has been treated. Um, you can also demand of your representatives that they demand the truth about what is happening with our pandemic. And. I mean, my God, if there was ever a moment where we need a, a free press to keep the pressure on sources within the government to let us know what's really happening in terms of, you know, how this administration is approaching the pandemic and, and presenting it to us, this is it. So I just I, I just think it's it, it's a time for activism. And if this book plays any role in inspiring that in some of its readers, then I feel like I've done something good. Mm-hmm. So, um, sort of not, not, I don't want to say quite play quite the devil's advocate. Um, but considering like this book's, what this book discusses in a sense, um, someone might argue, well, if the press simply reports what the government wants, you know, can you trust the press? If the press now, you know, now with the press losing, you know, losing subscription and losing money, you know, now articles just seem to be press releases given to them by companies or whatever. Um, you know, what if someone were to argue, well, the press is really just a mouthpiece for established interests, you know, how, how can you trust it? You know, how, how would you approach that, that, uh, complaint? Well, yeah, you, you don't, you don't trust press that's exclusively, you know, a public relations arm for, you know, a special interest. You just, you don't. Um, but you know, the fact is, is that, you know, the, the more trusted, 
entities really are engaging in, you know, extremely important investigative journalism and their sourcing is deep across, you know, across the government. And, um, you know, investigative journalism is the most is really, you know, what you're looking for. I mean, I, to a certain extent, you know, access journal. One of the reasons I was so upset about discovering that Hersey's story had been submitted to Leslie Groves, again, is because it, it made it feel more like a, an act of access journalism. I mean, access journalism does have its limitations and it, sh- it, it should be suspected by, by readers or viewers. Um, you know, I mean, the white house press corps has a really complicated, has always had a really complicated role to play, you know, in terms of breaking real news, but also maintaining its access to, um, you know, to, to the president and, and, and sources in the white house, you know, so, you know, access journalism should always be regarded again as limited, but the kinds of journalism that I profile in my, in my book and not just Hersey's story, but you know, the initial press accounts out of, out of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, these are not active access journalism. I mean, especially the initial ones, they are against the grain revelations. You know, they, they went to the sources, they reported what they saw, you know, even though Hersey ended up submitting his story, it was kind of lost on Leslie Groves, you know, what Hersey was really up to when he approved it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, true investigative journalism by seasoned or and, and ethical journalists is as important as ever. Mm-hmm. And just to clarify, when I said, um, you, you know, your your book or John Hersey's book is as an example of um government mouthpieces i meant there were certain characters you you mentioned in the book certain reporters who would just kind of uh repeat the government's line uh for their news articles a few of them i think i forget their names oh yeah absolutely and frankly you know upsettingly two of the main ones are in the new york times one of them is on the payroll of the new york times and the war department at the same time mm-hmm. you know and you know his name was uh, william lawrence and his nickname was atomic bill lawrence he had accompanied the nagasaki bombing run he was you know the one who put out the primary article um that that demonstrated groves's position that reports of radiation poisoning among blast survivors were quote unquote Tokyo tales. I mean, so yeah, obviously, you know, somebody who's a, a propagandist, whether it's, you know, a, an atomic Bill Lawrence for the New York times in 1945, or whether it's a Sean Hannity in uh, 2020 um, should be regarded with, you know, enormous suspicion and you're, 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 they are not, reliable sources of true information but if you are you know dealing with an independent-minded investigative journalists and they are a lot fewer there are fewer of them than there are you know the access core types those are the ones that need to be to be protected and honored Mm -hmm. interesting so did you have any difficulties in getting the book uh, finished or published I mean, besides, you know, the pandemic, <laughs> you know, threatening to shut down our presses and, and direct all attention everywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I mean, the, the, the book was commissioned before it was written, uh, you know, off proposal. Um, and so I, I, you know, always knew that it was going to be published and, you know, and it was a Simon & Schuster property. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I will say, you know, when we have always had the always had the August release date because it was meant to come out to commemorate or coincide with the 75th anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima um, that, you know, in March, when, you know, the world shut down or America shut down, or at least the parts of America that I, you know, have spent my time in New York City and Los Angeles, 
you know, it was it really, you know, my, my team and I were just racked with anxiety and, and indecision. You know, what do we do? Do we continue to honor this release date? Um, or, you know, is there, are we going to be able to even publish copies of this book? You know, because we're the print, we're a printer is going to be in, you know, it functioning in, in, in May and June when we had, we're, we're ready to go to press. Um, I was really, really lucky because we were able to publish the volume that we needed. Um, and, and also my publisher was absolutely right in keeping the anniversary publication date because so many important news outlets really honored 75th anniversary coverage of Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Japanese surrender, um, you know, end of World War II, VJ Day. I mean, all, all of these, all of these crucial anniversaries uh, were covered, and so we just we ended up being being lucky. You know, that said, I know that you know now that we're in full on crazy election mode, um, and you know, with Ginsburg, Justice Ginsburg dying. I mean, I am so competing for attention. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the ideal time to have released a book in, in that respect, but I, I feel very honored by the attention that it did get and the coverage that it did get. I think fiction writers are getting slammed as well uh, right Ooh. now. I don't know if you're aware of that, that everything came out in September. It's kind of an exaggeration, but you know, because well, it, it all got pushed back, right. you know, from, from, I mean, you know, I originally agitated for a March, 2020 release date because I wanted this to come out ahead of other big books that, you know, came out about, you know, World War II, end of World War II anniversaries. I mean, if, if this book would have been just completely lost to history, um, if it had come out in March of 2020. Hmm. Yeah, I get, yeah, you might be right there. Um, yeah, I, I can't disagree. Um, What's your next current or, or next uh, big writing project book book length? I don't know yet. I don't. I mean, I, I genuinely. I mean, still very much in the throes of publicizing this book. Mm-hmm. Um, we're in the middle of optioning it out for uh, documentary and dramatic series, mm-hmm. and I, you know, because you know, I, I will be involved. You know, we'll, we'll see what happens with those projects, um, but I will be involved with those too. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of writing, I, I don't know. I I really meant it when I said that I was um, very worried that I'm never going. That I, how do I top this? Hmm. You know, in terms of the experience of, of researching it and writing it, mm-hmm. um, and it did take me. You know, as I mentioned, you know, in, in the earliest part of our chat, I had scouted this topic for quite some time before I actually came to this topic. I don't know what the next writing project is going to be uh, yet, but I'm still holding on to this one for as long as I can because it was very special. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, wh- where can people find uh, find you on, on the web? Um, they can find me at my website, which is my full name, uh, Leslie, L-E-S-L-E-Y, M as in Mary, M as in Mary, B as in boy, L-U-M-E dot com. And you can also find me on Twitter. My, my least favorite place to reside, but I'm there. Okay. And what's your Twitter name? Oh, I'm sorry. It's, it's my, it's the handle is, um, at Leslie M M bloom. It's all one, one long word. Okay. Um, that's all the questions I have. The, oh, actually there was one more thing I was going to mention, uh, for listeners, which is that the imagery in, in John Hersey's book, um, 
is pretty intense and it's stuff it's stuff some of it has never left me you know it's not like it haunts me or something but it's so vivid and intense and sort of disturbing um you know if you if for anyone who reads this that his book the book form of his article um yeah it, it's it's pretty memorable stuff um and then your book uh pretty much reinforces that <laughs> for for better or worse it it certainly adds to the story in a strong way so, uh, anyway, having said that, do you have any final thoughts or words? Hopefully not the last, the last, the final thoughts or words of my life. Um, but <laughs> you know, no, nothing other than, um, you know, it, it, this is, it's, it's such an unlikely story. I mean, fallout that is. And again, you know, the, there's just, I think one of the reasons why I found it so fascinating to write was just that there was just nothing typical about it. I mean, the, you know, the characters were unpredictable, um, you know, whether it was Hersey or Leslie Groves or any, any of the main characters in it. Um, it's a really character driven world. And, you know, as much as it, it does contain, you know, the graphic descriptions, you know, that Hersey, you know, Hersey documented in his Hiroshima, this book for me has always been, again, about how the story of the bomb was rolled out, you know, to, to the American people. And it's a newsroom story and it's about newsroom culture and it's about reporters. And, you know, I just really loved being in the world of these, these war reporters and, you know, their wiles and their complicity and their antipathy to authority. I mean, it's all there. It was just a really, unlikely world you know the, the japanese press corps has not been documented like this before and i'm just so uh glad that i was the one who had the privilege just to to begin telling this story yeah i'm glad you wrote it thank you thanks so much for for uh all the nice things you said about it and for having me on yeah thank you very much thank you for speaking with me thank you for listening if you like this podcast military history inside out please subscribe to it and rate it if you can if you want more military history ranging from the ancient to the modern, please visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep track of my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. Thanks for listening.